Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, uh, December the 19th, 2013. This is episode 1270 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, because of the way things got tossed around, all my interviews ended up getting pushed out this week, except for one I'll be doing this afternoon after you hear this show. Um, so you got me alone again today. And we're going to continue our Food Forest series, and this will wrap it up. Uh, in fact, you might even hear this show pretty late in the day because I might have to finish, stop it, do my interview, come back on and finish it up. We'll see if I can fit it all into the time that I have allotted here. Um, but um, this is part four, and if you don't hear your particular question addressed today, uh, and you haven't heard it in the last three shows, what I'm going to tell you is your question has been answered. That a lot of these questions are duplicate questions. Now, different people ask them from their own unique, you know, this is what my property is like. But the questions have been answered. If you haven't heard an answer to your question yet, go back and listen because I have answered your question. Uh, in, in my answers to other people that ask the same question, but they just don't live where you live or their property's not a rectangle like yours is or, or what have you. Um, I can only answer the same question so many times, but I have a bunch of them today, and they were great questions. And if you didn't get yours particularly answered, it doesn't mean that your question was bad. It just means that somebody else asked the same question a different way first. I did them in the order that they came in. I've also like really chopped and dropped the questions this time. I went through all of them and took out the actual question, and I'll only refer back to details where and as I need to. Uh, so some people wrote me a paragraph, and I ended up with one question out of it, or three questions out of it, and I'm just going to answer those questions to try to make this, this show kind of skip along a bit faster, And because uh, I think I've given enough details in the last shows I've done on this. Before I get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day, number one, Harvest Eating, the awesome chef Keith Snow, who will teach you to cook seasonally and locally and make cooking a life skill. It's also a prepper skill. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, try living on MREs like I did at one time of my life for about six months, and you'll figure out real quick that being able to cook and be creative is a huge thing, especially in a scenario where you're going on less than you're accustomed to. Uh, so from everything from just living the better life today with doing the best you can with what you have uh, to being creative at a time when you may need to be, Harvest Eating can help you out. He also has great a great podcast, awesome videos, and uh, some awesome seasonings. Montreal Steak, Low and Slow Barbecue, Grilled Chicken, Northern Italian, those, those things. I mean, I use those weekly. I'm using all four of those on one thing or another. Last night I did ribeyes with the Montreal steak. They were fabulous. They always are. Check it out today, harvesteating.com. Next up, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Yes, the Berkey guy himself. Now, everyone knows it's kind of kicked the tires around what water filtration systems are out there, that Berkey makes some of the best and most cost-effective systems available. They can't fail unless you put them together wrong, and then you can always fix it. Um, they're a gravity feed system. They look great. They do an incredible job. Uh, they last for dadgone near ever. They're awesome. But why get your Berkey from the Berkey guy? Well, what are you going to do? Get it from the non-Berkey guy? Why the heck would you do that? 
I mean, if you could get the survival podcast, why would you go get some other survival? Right? You get the duh. I mean, you, I'm in serious uh, seriousness though. Jeff's an awesome dude. He is just an awesome dude. He is really, really dedicated to his customer service. Uh, so much so that I can't put him on discussion forums. I put him on a discussion forum once, and he was doing customer service on his iPad in the middle of the discussion forum. So when I recommend Jeff to you, I know he's going to take care of you. He's one of the top dealers for Berkey products in the world, and uh, that gives him great pricing as well, a great relationship with the factory. And he has other great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find him at directive21.com. I want to tell you a little story. I just thought of when I was talking about Jeff. This is like an aside here. Um, so I have this video from a seed bank that Jeff uh, sent me years ago, two or three years ago that I made this video. And I just go through the seed bank and I talk about the distant hybrid and GMO and what a seed bank will do and will not do for you. And some guy made a comment this week that there was an advertisement uh, on a website somewhere where uh, someone that was talking about what Jeff did said, well, he, he gives you like four filters with some special. And when the guy went to the site and ordered it, that you know, Jeff sent him the system with two filters. And if you wanted extra filters, it costs more. And the guy was upset because his site said you get four. Well, Jeff's like, I don't run that site, and that's not what we're doing. And when you ordered it, it said what you get. And the guy accused him of false advertising and wanted two free filters. And Jeff just basically told him to pound sand. And the guy posted on my YouTube channel that he thought this was um, – uh, false advertising, and that Jeff didn't feel like it applied to him. So I, I commented back to the guy. I said, so you think that a third party, without your knowledge, consent, or approval, should be able to make a commitment for you, and then you should have to honor it. Great, I'm making the following commitment for you. I think you should work for me for the next six months for $5 a day on my homestead. I expect to see you tomorrow with your shovel in hand. Uh, he hasn't shown up yet or replied. Well, I just thought that was funny because that's that's like one of the rare complaints I've heard about Jeff, and it's not really a legitimate complaint. Anyway, let's talk about the year in history, 1270. I'm going to lean on Alex again. Um This is the year 1270. The King Crusader is dead. King Louis the Ninth of France uh, sets out in the Eighth Crusade to counter the threat of the Makhmuks, former Egyptian Muslim slaves, only to die at the gates of Tunis during a siege, probably from tainted water. His brother Charles I of Sicily and the Sultan of Tunis agreed to end the siege. In the meantime, the Mamelukes are on the rampage in the city of Ashkelon. The city will be destroyed and the harbors filled in. It will never be rebuilt. The Crusader states are in trouble. Prince Edward I heads to Syria to make a stand. Um, it's interesting that these wars in the past, that sometimes cities and valuable cities were so destroyed they were just considered not worth rebuilding. Uh, next up, the Koreans are revolting. Uh, The Koreans are rebelling against the puppet government set up by their Mongol overlords. This is yet another example of the tenuous hold Kublai Khan has over his empire. The only people the Koreans will hate more than the Mongols will be the Japanese, but that's far into the future for now. To sum it up, God is logical. Thomas Aquinas completes his Summa Theologica, which contains in part logical proof of the existence of God, It is an impressive piece of logic, but over time, counter-arguments will weaken his original line of logic. His work remains an important part of philosophical thought to this day. Um, a couple things 
King Louis of France, the King Crusader, the man who's been through crusade after crusade after crusade, uh, at a time when kings were part of battles. They didn't just like sit back a thousand yards away and go, okay, you guys go take care of that. And if they get close, let's, you know, he's been through these battles. Taken out by water. Taken out by tainted water. And I, I looked up and there's, that's the, every account seems to say that's the only thing that makes sense based on what we know. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Number one killer in the world from disasters is diarrhea. Number one cause disease from bad water. So, hey, I talked to you about Jeff and the Berkey guy in the water filtration today. That's something to think about there. Um, Alex says on the God is logical thing, I worked up on a college paper that compared and contrasted Summa Theologica with more modern philosophies concerning the existence of God. It was a short paper, not earth-shattering, but I remember I was impressed by Thomas Aquinas despite the flaws in his argument. It was a great leap forward in thought. Um I've never read this, but I do believe God is logical. Of course, I believe that from the standpoint of a deist. Uh, in fact, that is the, the sum total of the reason for the belief in God for people such as myself, is that it logically makes sense. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting as well. Uh, last but not least, before we get into your questions and, uh, and, and go through them, and there are a ton of them today, so I'm going to move a little faster than you maybe have, have been accustomed to, in this show, uh, let's go ahead and remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to help support this show, you can do so for 18.3 cents an episode. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and you'll see how to join and sign up. Uh, there's over 40 different vendors uh, that do offer discounts to you once you become a member. Two of those discount programs alone are worth the entire cost of becoming a member for a year of about 50 bucks. Well, one's 49 and one's 50, so there's $99. Just in two discount club memberships that you're giving for free. There's over, uh, over, well, $180 ish worth of free ebooks you get on day one. Um, it's a great deal. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, uh, or a firefighter, all of you guys, you know, qualify for a discount, just email me. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me a little bit about your service, and I'll send you a, uh, some information on how you can save even more money. Do that before, not after you join. Okay, so let's get into this show, and let me talk a little bit about what I'm assuming today. This is part four, and it's really the fifth show in a series because I did a food forest show all about food forests, what they are, why you should care, why you should have them, why would you want one, how in, how important they are from a standpoint of rebuilding food security and food sovereignty in America, all that good stuff, all the resources, return of investment, yada, 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 functions, how they work, why they work, what to do. So that's done. I've answered question after question after question. I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing this out, that if you're listening to today's show and you haven't listened to these other shows, and at some point in the show, you're like, what the hell is he talking? I don't understand. I'm, I'm not following this line of thought or I'm not getting why this is important. I'm assuming at this point, much as if we were doing this as a classroom thing and we were doing lectures in a, in a university, that you've attended the first four lectures. And I'm building off of that. And I'm not going back and reiterating many things that I now believe I've conveyed to you. So... If you haven't listened to the other ones, go ahead and do it. And I have to say that when we complete today's show, I do expect there'll be more, and we might do one more Q&A, but we'll have wiped out all the questions. And this was an amazing experience for me because it made me think and dig deeper as I went through this. 
And I have to say that I think when you take these five shows, and possibly there'll be a sixth, and put them together, they have the value of taking a college-level curriculum on food forestry. I, I, I really believe that. Not forestry in of itself, which is a totally different discipline of just understanding all the things in the forest, but food forest establishment. Uh, so thank you to everyone who's asked questions. So let's start out with, again, I've abbreviated these long questions to get through today. Is chop and drop selective pruning or cutting to the ground? Uh, it's neither usually, okay? It all depends. Chop and drop, I will say what that is. That's where we have trees in our systems that are there primarily as support species And selectively at certain times, specifically in wet seasons, when evaporation does not exceed rainfall. In other words, when it's you get more rain than you get evaporation, the ground stays moist, and the sun is not beating down and, and, and killing stuff, you cut the tops of these trees off and you mulch them to the ground. And as they decompose, they help support the other trees. At the same time, that tree will regrow. It's called coppicing or pollarding, depending on how high we do this. And we'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again. Eventually, most of those trees we're doing this will say, okay, I get it, I'm done, I'm tired, and we'll die, and they'll go to the ground. We are never really selectively pruning those, and we're never really cutting them to the ground. If we cut them to the ground, we've disadvantaged them, to a point that makes them hard for them to regrow aggressively. And they're also going to get very bushy, very, very low, and it's going to make it harder for us to get in there. Selective pruning, we don't have time for with this type of thing. Okay, What we're going to do is we're going to go in and we're going to, we're going to do most of our pruning at about chest-to-head height with these trees and, and put them to the ground. And with the exception that we may determine certain trees are going to be long-term overstory right from the get-go. Like, I'm going to let that pagoda tree be a canopy tree, and I'm going to let that mimosa be a canopy tree. And if I'm going to do any pruning at all, that might be selective on that tree. Like, I, I just don't want it to grow out too much this way or whatever, and I'm going to let that canopy out. The rest of them, I'm just whacking them. I'm just whacking them. That's the whole point. They're hardy. They can handle it. They don't need to be loved on like little babies. That's why we're using these tough support trees. Then he says, do you cut up branches into small parts with chop and drop? <sighs> this is one of those ones It depends. But this one's an easy it depends, right? It's just not like one of these complicated, like, do the stars align with Pluto? And uh, does your dog named Toto spin in a, uh, a tornado and land in the land of Oz? And if so, you do. this is a very, very simple it depends. If you're doing a large mainframe food forest, um, a Zone 4-style forest, something that's designed for low-maintenance, you're pretty much going to cut and drop. You want to cut it up in a couple pieces when you do it and you got the time? Go ahead. It will help speed things along, but it's pretty much rough mulch. That's the whole point of Zone 4. Little maintenance, easy to do, in, chop, drop, out. Once or twice a season, that's about all you're doing. If you're, you've moved into a Zone 1 or Zone 2 style food forest, your urban landscapes, your small landscapes, your landscapes that are getting a lot more attention and love, and you're not doing a lot of support trees, 
You might have one support tree to five productive trees right from the beginning. You might not have hardly any uh, support trees in a, a situation where you're doing lots of composting and lots of mulching and irrigating and intensive management, and you're really space conscious. You may not want to give up much space, if any at all, to support trees. And in that case, now we're pruning these fruit trees to be small trees. We're doing the backyard orchard model that we talked about in the last show. In that case, there's no reason to cut the tops off of an apple tree and carry them over to a compost bin and mix them in there unless you just need material. In that case, chop and drop is the same tree you're chopping, you're dropping. Two back to that end of supporting that tree. So instead of cutting this mimosa and putting the mimosa stuff on the ground around the cherry tree or the apple tree, I'm actually giving the apple tree a haircut to keep it the size I want it and putting that to the ground. And this, you know, inside there, there can be a mix of annuals and perennials. And I've got this basil plant at the end of the season and it's all woody now. And I pick it up and I chop and drop it. In those scenarios, yeah, I would chop that stuff as small as you can within reason. You're in a different zone environment now. You've gone from, I'm going to have a couple hundred trees or more in the end, plus bushes, plus shrubs, and I'm going to let this system very much function as an unmaintained system with very little maintenance, with rough mulches and, and big fungal activity and just this mainframe swale design system or mainframe hugel design or just, you know, maybe you don't need hugels or swales. There, you can do this without it if you have the right climate, the right rainfall, etc., just with tree planting. Now you've moved into this zone one style system. You walk out your door and there's your little forest. Or a zone two where it's a little less maintenance, but you're still looking finer mulches. More likely that you're doing irrigation. More likely that you're actively taking compost and putting it into these systems. In that scenario, you want to chop stuff smaller partially from an appearance standpoint. Uh, and partially because it's designed to be a high maintenance system. Now, maintenance, comparatively speaking, is high. It's high versus a Zone 4 agro-food forest, right? Farm forestry. It's high maintenance versus that. It's not high maintenance compared to a conventional raised bed garden that you're out there weeding all the time and jacking around with and stuff. It's sheet mulched. Um, it's, 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 you're out there, you're harvesting. This branch is a little bit long, chopped to the ground. There's a weed. I don't really want it, but it's kind of small yet. I'll let it go. Maybe the chickens will pick it up. That's a bigger weed. Chop, cut it up, throw it to the ground. Okay, that's enough for today. Turn the, turn the drip irrigation on. Maybe a timer does that, but it's a much more loved on system. And in those systems, I would cut up stuff. Um, what about attracting wildlife sna like snakes into forest litter? The person that sent me this question is in McKinney, Texas. And let me just tell you about snakes in McKinney, Texas. You probably are going to have a Texas brown snake, which is like a little worm, would be the most likely thing that you have there. Um, if, you, if you pick this snake up, hold it, and poke it in the face, it won't bite you. And if it did, it couldn't hurt you. That's the most likely snake. You'll find these little brown and earth snakes around here. And they're just not a problem. You might pick up some garters or something like that. They're not harmful. Um, 
The other two snakes that you're likely to have come around, they can be a little bit aggressive if you jack with them uh, and mess with them, are bull snakes and rat snakes. And they'll hiss and they'll puff up and they'll stick their tail in there and they'll rattle it around and try to pretend they're a rattlesnake to scare you away. They will not hurt you. Um, the odds of you ending up in McKinney, Texas, unless you have a lot of water on your property, I'm talking lakes and stuff like that, with a, a, a venomous snake are very, very low. Your, your options are going to be a cottonmouth moccasin, whatever you want to call it, a water moccasin, right? Um, a rattlesnake, um, a coral snake, or a copperhead. And you're not going to really have much likely of having copperheads in this climate without a lot of moisture. Uh, and the moccasins are the same thing. And, and they're not even that common, especially within the Metroplex area. Um, rattlesnakes, very, very uncommon right here. They do happen. Um, and coral snakes are another snake. They're, they're highly toxic, but you gotta, you gotta mess with a coral snake to get bit. I mean, way more than you got, I see you gotta kind of mess with a rattlesnake, but yeah, you could step on the back of a rattlesnake and get bit. It, it can happen. I, I did it with a copperhead when I was a kid. I guess I was, I was out of the army by then, but, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 it can happen. Um, but most bites are from people jacking with snakes. Um, a coral snake isn't going to bite you that way. They're a very small snake with a very small head with very small teeth and they're rear fanged, meaning their, their fangs are not up front and not these big hypodermic fangs. Um, it's a bad thing to be bit, but you, I mean, people that are bit by coral snakes are generally people that own them and jack with them and bare hand them and get bit like at the tip of the finger or in between the fingers or something like that. And it's usually a feeding response bite. It's just not that big a concern. It's just not that big of a concern. Um, if you're going to have natural systems, you're going to attract natural wildlife. And snakes are a natural part of the ecosystem. Um, I just wouldn't worry about it myself at all. At all, at all, at all, at all. You are just as likely to have a snake take up residence in a wood pile or underneath a shed as you are in a system like this. In fact, a system like this is more likely to give a snake more space to kind of spread out and be a snake and do things like rodent control for you, and you'll probably never see them because they'll have plenty of places to go away. And you're not going to create a snake farm. You know, you're not going to end up walking in there one day and there's like 400,000 snakes in there. That's not going to happen either. Um, but... The snakes that you're, again, you're likely to see are like your smooth earth and your brown snakes. And these are snakes that never get over 10 inches. They're, they look like a worm when you pull them out. You should welcome them. They're, they are a control species uh, of pests and slugs and things like that. Um, again, rat snakes and bull snakes are completely harmless. And they are great at rodent control. And I would welcome them. You might pick up a king snake or two around here. That's another. I mean, if if you're worried about rattlesnakes, if you find a king snake, let it go in your food forest. It's a it's a predator of venomous snakes. Now, if you have a few king snakes around, you ain't gonna have many other snakes because they don't just kill rattlesnakes. They kill all. Of, that's why they call them king snakes because they kill other species. Uh, they should call them snake killer snakes. Um, you might pick some of those up if you're lucky. There's not as many of them around here. There's a uh, a snake around here called a. Uh, Dell are those things that are a racer species. A uh, yellow-bellied racer. Uh, they're kind of like a drab, olive green, light yellow belly snake. They're a dineural snake, meaning they're active during the day. 
Uh, they're a great rodent control, completely harmless. Uh, I found two of them here. Uh, I bare hand non-venomous snakes all the time. I don't really worry about getting bit much. I try to avoid it. But neither one of them actually tried to bite me, even with bare handling them. Where like the there's a little video of a rat snake I caught, and I'm holding him behind the head because once I got control of him, he did want to to bite me. Um, those I've never even seen them get aggressive. They act like they're going to get aggressive. They kind of sit up in S curve and. And, and, and just sit there like, I'm going to do something. But they don't even own their mouth or hiss, at least the ones I've run into so far. I, I just wouldn't worry about this. I, I just think that it's, 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 it's something that people worry too much about. And I'm going to go on before I turn this into a snake show because then I'll get into water snakes and how people see moccasins all the time. And 90% of the time they're diamondback water snakes or neurodia or green water snakes. And they're just not a concern either. But I digress and we'll move on. Um, Uh, this same person asked me, where exactly do you drop the chop, basically? So I've, I've chopped my mimosa tree, my legume tree. Do I put it on the swale bank? Do I put it in the swale? Do I put it out in the pasture? And the answer is I'm going to put most of my chop and drop around the, the long-term trees I want to establish, wherever they may be. Most of them will probably be during establishment, at least, is in the swale burn, on the downhill side of the swale, if I'm doing that. But it does, if I'm doing a, a urban forest garden and I've got a few mimosas spaced in through my urban forest garden and my, my veggie garden and all that, um, they might be spread out. I'm going to put them to the end of supporting the trees. I put them there to support. So around the trees. If I've done a swale, but I'm not just foresting the, like a strip forest, I'm extending the forest out away from it. I mean, let's say I'm going uh, 100 feet wide or more. Then I'll put them wherever the closest tree they're supporting is. So if I cut my mimosa tree or my pagoda tree or my locust, and I look around and there's an apple, boom, it goes there. So it's not really about the swale, if there is one. It's not really about the hoogle, if there is one, or wood corbett, if there is one. It's about where is a tree that will appreciate this mulch. That, that's where it goes. Uh, and he asked me about spreading wood chips two to four inches deep in his pasture. And is there any problem with that? Yeah, there's a big problem with that. Assuming you want to keep open pasture. If you're looking to do forest around cells of pasture and graze it, then that's a huge bad idea. Um, very hard for your pasture to keep growing up through all those wood chips. And what will grow through there is going to be your tougher weeds, uh, like docks and things like that. And they'll eventually sort of kind of run rampant on you if you're not putting something else in there to occupy the space. And you will choke out a lot of your clovers and, and, and grasses and things like that. Um, but if the goal is, to take that whole space and turn it into garden and forest garden and food forest, then that's a great idea. You, but I would probably sheet mulch it with cardboard uh, and then a layer of compost and then my wood mulch if I was going to do that. But that is because you're, you're, you're taking the pasture away. If you want to maintain pasture, and there's very good reasons to do this. Again, strip forests... With, so you've got this long, narrow strip like a snake of forest. And then you've got a pasture and then another long, narrow strip. That's called an inner swale cell. And if I want to push chickens or goats or something through there, or I just want the open space because I like it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, you know, to maintain it with mechanical uh, means, such as mowing or scything, then I don't want to put down four inches of wood mulch there. 
I'm only doing that if I want to make the pasture go away and convert it into something else. Um, next person said, what would you do if your house was on your property's southern edge? And basically said that Ben Falk in his book said that if you have a piece of property and you take your house and stick it all the way to your southern edge and orient it south, that there could be some advantages there, sure, because the house is getting hit with the southern exposed sun, but he calls it a type 1 error. Because you don't have very much space at all to work with now in front of your home, which has an awful lot of opportunity for growing edibles and things like that. And your, sh your, your house now is going to cast a shadow as it, uh, directly behind itself. And that shadow is going to be poor growing environment. So you've kind of cut off your nose to spite your face. And... His question was almost like, well, if I've already done this and I didn't know what I was doing at the time I bought the property, would it be better just to sell the property or is it worth you know, developing? And the answer is it depends. And if the property has lots of potential, then all you're looking at is a design restriction. And what Jeff Lawton says and what I completely agree with as far as design restrictions is the more restrictions the design has within reason, the more elegant the design and more functional the design. Because it makes you think harder. So I wouldn't sell a house just because it was on the you know southern edge of a property. The my property is toward the southern edge, my house, but I have a pretty big property and pretty big side lots. Um, the main reason I wouldn't want it further toward the southern edge is because there's a road out there with cars that make noise. Um, but I focused most of my efforts on the other side of the house anyway. And depending on where you are, latitude-wise, is depending on how big an issue this is anyway. In a climate like mine, the shadow cast by the house is very narrow even in the um, summertime or even in the wintertime. It doesn't, you know, there's a lot of sun that still hits behind my house. There's a very small, true Uh, continuous shaded area, even in the lowest sun that we have. During the summer, it's almost non-existent uh, because my sun comes up to my, my, my northeast, goes out over the top of the house, and sets in the southwest because I'm so far south. And if that's the type of situation you're in, it's far less of an issue than for someone like Ben... Uh, ben Falk, who is in Vermont and is at a latitude where that sun is very low this time of year and out through the solstice and into February and January. And as you're getting toward the end of or beginning of your growing season and you're marginal on whether your plants can break bud or whether your annuals can survive and what have you, um, That extra shadow can, can be the difference between life and death where that shadow falls and thriving or not thriving. So it's, it's a lot dependent on where, where you live. And I, I think that from the rest of the email from, from uh, this individual, it's not a place where I would sell the house if I like the house and like the potential the house has. I think that any property should be evaluated for what it can do apart from uh, the general guidelines given by very good advisors such as Mr. Falk or Jeff Lawton or me or anybody else. You look at the property for what it is and say, what can it do? Now, if you're in a pre-purchase decision and you have a property that once you've looked at it from a permaculture eye is going to be easier 
than another property, you're deciding between those two, well, by all means, take the advice that you get from someone like Ben or Jeff or, or whoever. But when it comes down to the fact I already have this property, what can I do with it? Um, just understand there's going to be design limitations wherever you are. And I would say, and the, the, this person also said the driveway is on that side. So that takes up space that could normally be used. So understand, Ben is speaking from a perfect scenario. You're, you've bought a piece of land. You're going to decide where your house goes. Don't do this with your house. Make allowances for this. Put your driveway on the back side of the house, on the north side of the house, where it's shaded anyway. And you park your car in the shade. It doesn't get blasted with sun, what have you. This guy's like, well, I got trees there anyway, and they're shaded. I'm not going to cut those. Don't worry about it. The property you have is like one and a half acres or more. It's big. This individual has sent this question. It's big enough. I mean, you can always design to the property. These, these situations that are type one errors are when you're deciding to build the house and you have an opportunity to make the choice. Right? They're not when, well, I already own this place and I'm going to sell it just because it's not quite what I'm looking for. You're never going to find exactly what you're looking for. You're always going to have to work with some limitation. Next question is, what are some ways to make microclimate, hot microclimates? Uh, and the person who asked the question said that Paul's always talking about Sepp Holzer growing a lemon in the Alps. Um, this is what I think about lemons in, in cold climates. Um, if you really want to do it, go ahead. But I think you're wasting time and energy to try to prove a point. I, I think in some ways, the, the reason this works for Holzer is he has this hill exposed to the, the sun, the way that I'll talk about in a second. He has the angles, he has the solar traps, he has the water reflecting light. But the big thing he has is a great big giant blanket of snow every year. And that snow lays over top of these things that you normally think wouldn't grow there. And most citrus and things like that are tolerant of being at a freeze or below a freeze without dying. What they can handle is like 15 degrees, right? So he gets a climate where he gets that kind of temperature. But by the time you get that cold, generally everything's underneath this snow blanket and it's in contact with ice. What's temperature ice? 32 degrees. You know, when you learn winter survival skills, you learn that snow is actually an insulator. You'd be better off creating a snow cave and being in there than out exposed to the elements. So those plants are kind of sitting in their own snow cave. And, and that's part of why he's successful with it. That said, there are ways to come up a zone or three. Uh, when I say zone or three, I mean not permaculture design zones, but USDA zones. Like you're in zone seven and you can effectively grow what would normally be a zone eight or zone nine plant. Um, and, and the main ways are one solar aspect. Without shade. So pointing toward the south, if you're in the northern hemisphere. Another one with solar traps is creating angles. So hugel beds, the big hugel beds on a 70 degree angle, that 70 degree angle pointing south, think of the slope there the way that you would think of putting up a solar panel. And if you think about putting, if you've seen freestanding solar panels, they're sitting lots of times right about that same 70 degree angle pointing at the sun. Because that's the maximum exposure they can get. Head south and point at that angle. And if the, they can track, so much the better. But your your garden bed can't track. So reasonable angle of the slope pointed at the sun and the main exposure of the sun. And pointing south to southwest is best. Because... By the time the sun really is pounding on the west side 
the ambient temperature for the day is as high as it's going to get. Western sun is more severe than eastern sun, even when they're like southeast versus southwest. The southwest gets the hottest. The ground holds the most heat. So that's another thing you can do is, is orient south to southwest versus south to southeast. The next thing you can do is use rocks. Rocks are heat traps. Building a rock enclosure around the area so that the rocks are baking in the heat and the rocks are releasing heat at night is another thing that you can do. Setting water features so that when you get in your lower sun angles, when you're really trying to push the temperature up, so that when light hits the water, it's reflected off the water and into your solar trap. So you're getting both the direct sun and the indirect sun into both your solar trap and your rockery. These are the big ones. And then the next thing, and the, probably the most important two, are one, lots of mulch. Because now you're protecting the roots. So a lot of things, it's not trying to get a lemon to grow. It's trying to get a plant to grow that technically should die to the roots and not come back next year instead of just going deciduous because you're too cold for it. So it's a plant that can handle a frost. It just can't handle your frost. It's too severe. The ground gets too cold. So a big, thick layer of mulch protects those roots so that when you get that temperature that's four or five degrees below the temperature that plant is supposed to be able to handle, the roots don't go down to that temperature or not to the temperature that they typically would unprotected, especially with all these other things you're doing to trap and hold heat. Right? So that's, that's a big, Uh, a, a very big part of doing this. And the next one is wind. You want to shelter the area so that harsh winter winds don't take away the reserved heat. Because if you have a cold wind blowing across warmed ground, it will cool much faster than still air around the cooled ground. The one big thing you have to be careful, though, with is you're putting texture in the landscape and you're putting in slopes and angles is understanding, like, okay, so where's my higher areas? And if you place these things so that at night, as the temperature cools, cold air goes downhill if they create a frost dam. So the cold air comes from uphill, downhill to this wonderful heat trap you have, but then it sits in there. It displaces the warm air. Then, then you have issues as well. The other thing is a forest itself creates a thermal belt. So if you have a forested area underneath and in the edges of those canopies, it'll take longer before your frost comes to full effect than it will outside of that. There'll be warm air trapped in the trees. So that's another thing is using other plantings to trap warm air and create a thermal belt. Those are the best ones that we have at our disposal. And I would strongly encourage people to think more about how do I increase the survivability of anything that's marginal with these things than try to grow a friggin' lemon in the Alps. If you want to do that, fine. But you know why you're doing it? To prove it can be done. I don't care how good people like Holzer are at this. He's not producing lemons in quantity for market or even for use. It's one here and one there, and they survive, and wow, look at it. And it's great for jarring people awake, but I'd be much more interested to see a person take something like a fajoa, a pineapple guava, that says you can only do this zone 8 and do it in zone 7. Or take an olive 
that's that's harding to zone eight B and be able to pull that off in zone seven. That makes more sense to me. I mean, those things make a lot more sense to me. And I, I think that some of this other stuff is just theatrics. And I think that you can become so obsessed with it that you don't get a lot of other things done because you're so obsessed with this thing that's like some kind of holy grail or whatever. And let's be honest about it. It's not like Sepp did all these things and ended up growing a lemon in the Alps because that was his goal. As he did all of these things, he was able to do it because he got all these other things done. And it was like, oh, well, let's see. How, I've done this. Let's see what I can do. I can try this, and then, then I'll try this. So don't worry about trying to go there. Just worry about trying to understand microclimates in of themselves and create warm ones and cool ones because there's reasons for cool ones as well. I want to grow Nanking cherry, which is a great little miniature cherry. And if I try to do that in an environment um, like I just talked about, it's too hot. In fact, if I try to do it in an environment not like that here, it's too hot. I have to create cool microclimates for that species. Or if I want to try to pull off gooseberry here, I have to create cool microclimates for that species. So creating both is a good idea, but those are the ways that you can create warm ones. Um, the next one is, uh, the guy asked me, if I broadcast seed over a burnt area, will that work? Uh, or am I just feeding birds? And the answer is, it depends. How many birds do you have? What are you broadcasting? If you're broadcasting clover or alfalfa or something like that, that's not that palatable to birds and not that attractive to birds, you're probably not feeding birds. Um, if you're broadcasting something like barley um, or sunflower or wheat or millet, you might be feeding a lot of birds. It all depends. Um, but the bigger question really is, well, will it work? You know, and what you don't have, if you just broadcast it, is any sort of how or how 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 harrowing. God, why do you stumble on it? Harrowing or covering or knocking dirt back on top of. When you put any reasonable cover, in other words, not concrete, right, or 18 inches of wood chips. When you put reasonable cover on seed, whether it's dirt or straw, or anything, or compost, your germination success rate goes up between 60 to 90%. Better germination, just from that one step, even with seeds that do okay broadcast. So it makes a lot of sense to cover it, and you can kind of be multifunctional here. You can go in, broadcast the air, you get a few bales of straw, and lay that straw down, keep it moist, get it going, and then you can go back in, and if you don't want to just leave the straw there, because you want to use it somewhere else now, you can basically lightly rake it and take most of it and go do something else with it once your seed is established. So it doesn't have to just be, okay, now I went and bought 12 bales of straw, and that's the only thing I can do with it. It makes a lot of sense to leave it there, especially on ground that's been burned. Now, here's the thing about burns. Burns encourage the growth of some plants and discourage the growth of others. Um, generally speaking, in a small area of soil, a few meters, there's thousands of dormant seeds at any one time. And what you're doing with a, what happens with a burn is it's a disturbance. And there's many different types of disturbances, and something's going to grow there now because there's seed there already. It's what is going to be encouraged. If I take 
the same piece of ground that's been treated the same way forever, that looks like it's got the same plants on it, and I make four squares, and I take one, and I just plow up that square. And then right next to it, I take one, and I compact that square. And I take another one, and I crop it for a season. right? So I put peas in it, and then they die at the end of that season. And then the fourth one I burn. Going into that next season, they'll all have lots of growth of something. They'll all grow different species of what we'll call weeds. The compacted soil will grow things like docks and dandelions and chicories. The soil that I've plowed up and left loose will grow things with hairnet roots, um, like chickweed and other plants that have shallow root systems to hold it back together. The land that I cropped will grow weeds that are good at mining the things I've created a deficiency in. So if I've created deficiencies in calcium through my cropping, things that are good dynamic accumulators of calcium will be stimulated into germination. And if I burn, I'm going to get things that do well in a high-carbon environment that can handle the initial heat and that were deep enough below the surface to not be killed off by the burn or landed there after the burn. So burning can encourage things and discourage other things. And the only real way you're going to find out what's going to work is to try. Um, and there's other things that can happen with burning. What's the soil like? If the soil is pretty much like good topsoil, there's not a lot that occurs. Sometimes in a burn, if the soil's heavy in clay, you'll actually get places where the clay will almost look like it's been through a kiln. Right, and it, it it won't go back into the texture that you you you're looking for from it, at least down to the layer that it's been basically fired. So you can have a area that's heavy clay at the surface be burned and basically fire that clay. So you kind of have to take a look at it and see whatever you're going to need to do to make that work. And it depends how big an area is it, and what burned. Right? Was it low scrub that burned a grass fire? Right? It's hot, fast, and done. Or was it a big pile of, of, of trees that were cut and left that burned for days, hot and fast and then slow smoldering, you're gonna, and what's left behind? I mean, all of this depends on what you're going to have to do to get it going again. But in general, burns recover very, very well because they put a lot of biochar into your soil, including not just big old hunks, but little pieces you can't even see. Uh, slash and burn agriculture works, it just only works for so long. Uh, but burn and regrow and leave works very, very well. One of the questions I got today was another version of how do I put swales and hoogle beds together or can I put hoogle beds and swales together? Should I put hoogle beds and swales together? What happens if I put hoogle? Listen, what you first need to do is understand that not everything needs to be stacked in function. Hoogle beds are hoogle beds. Swales are swales. They are two ways of dealing with the same issue, increasing fertility and reducing the needs of irrigation. It's also good for reducing erosion. Okay, So you do not have to tie swales and hoogle beds together, and maybe you should and maybe you shouldn't. It depends. How steep is the slope? How big is the hoogle bed? How high is the hoogle bed? Is it a big subholster 70 degree angle, or is it a berm that looks like a swale anyway? All of these things depend. Is everything already doing well there without irrigation? Then why would you swale it? Just because? So my general stance 
is that hoogles are hoogles and swales are swales and that they're both parts of our wardrobe and they're in our closet and when we're deciding what we want to do today, we put on the right clothes for the right environment. If I'm going to go out in the Arctic, I put on really warm clothes. If I'm going to go out in the middle of a Texas summertime, I put on shorts and a t-shirt. And they're almost that different. They're almost that different. Swales, in a very cold climate, will trap cold. And that can be bad. They can become cold traps. In an environment that gets plenty of rain and doesn't really have much of a dry season, they'll work, but you don't really need them unless you're using them to fill dams and to move water around and to change overflow points. So why install something you don't need? Just because maybe you want to. I mean, they do look cool. They are awesome. So maybe that's what you would do. Think about this, though. The, 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 the guy, when it comes to swales for food forestry and for permaculture as a whole, is Jeff Lawton. Most of his work is in hot climates, tropics and subtropics. The guy for Hugo culture is Seb Holter. There is no one who's done it like he has unless he's gone there and helped them do it. I mean, really, I don't know of anything close to the Kermaterhof, which is his farm in Austria. And he's done it in the deserts and all. He says it works everywhere. But it was developed in cold, temperate climates. And swales for food forestry primarily were developed in warm climates. That might be a clue to where both of them are best suited. Does that mean you can't do hoogles in a warm climate? No. Does it mean you can't do swales in a cold climate? No. But it does mean that they both have their own advantages. Now, let's say that I was putting in swales. And I was putting swales in an area where we had a whole bunch of scrub trees that I was cutting down. Would I lay my trees along the contour line, and when I'm digging my swales, bury that wood in those swale berms? Sure. That would be great. If I just if that's just there, would I do it? Yes. If I have an existing hoogle bed, would I try to tie a swale into it? Probably not. I probably would not do it. Unless there was a very compelling reason for doing so. First of all, is the, is the hoogle bed on contour? If the hoogle bed is not on contour, all I'm doing with putting a swale there is dumping water against something not on contour when it overflows. And what that's going to do is what? It's going to erode. If you put moving water against something not on contour, it erodes very, very quickly. So what I would be more likely to do, if I had hoogles in a system, and I wanted to incorporate swales into that system, is I would put the hoogles, or let the hoogles be where they are, and I would put the, the swales upgrade of the hoogles, and let the swales do their own thing, and basically end up with the hoogles in the inner swale, and because I'm hydrating the subsurface with the swale, the hoogle will work better. I'm not necessarily tying the two things together. All I'm doing when I create a hoogle swale, if I'm doing that intentionally, is I'm just taking surplus organic matter and making it part of the berm. That's it. Uh, the person who asked this question also was worried that the hoogle beds wouldn't hold the trees. Like the tree will grow up and fall over. I don't know how you built your hoogle bed, so I can't really speak to that. But in general, that's not a concern. Um, when you build a hoogle bed, and you've got this wood core, and you've got this dirt over top of it, and you plant a big tree into it, that tree doesn't just stay in the hoogle bed. It, 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 you know, and that hoogle bed, I'll put it this way. Have you ever seen uh, a field 
with like a, a, a lump in it and a tree growing in that lump? Does the tree fall over? No, because the tree doesn't just grow in the lump. It, it goes through the lump and anchors into the ground, and it actually anchors the lump to the ground. So if you built a really high kind of shitty hugel bed that, 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 that erodes a lot and like it rains and you look in and see wood, you've got bigger problems, but yeah, your tree might fall down. But if you've got a good solid hugel structure, the tree ain't going nowhere. <laughs> ain't going nowhere fast anyway, let me just tell you that. Um, the next question is, are there dwarf nut trees? And I added to it, can you make your own? Now, if you're looking for a dwarf pecan, you're not going to find it. And I don't think, based on what I know of pecans, a pecan will do well in a dwarf situation, or a dwarf walnut, uh, or a dwarf butternut, or a dwarf heart nut, or a dwarf hickory of the varieties that are, you know, highly palatable or something like that. But you do have options for nuts in small trees. In some in some ways, you kind of have to create your own dwarf through the pruning process. Okay, if you want to stunt the growth a bit. Um, but if you do hazels and filberts, it's very easy to keep those as a low-growing nut, tree, or hedge. Um, Chinese chestnut. You can do a lot to control the growth of Chinese chestnut with pruning. American chestnut, if you're at a place where you can grow them without blight concerns, almost impossible. But Chinese chestnuts can be grown very bushy and low. They're a big plant, but not you can keep them from getting very, very high. Um, a, a better... Option, though, for most folks that would like to grow something like a chestnut in small spaces is a plant called chingapin. It's a native plant to the southeastern United States, and it's just like a little chestnut. And uh, they don't seem to be affected too much by blight. There's lots of options for that. Again, it's called chingapin. Uh, and those would be your best nut options, as, as far as I can think. And if you're in a, a climate where you can grow them, almonds. An almond tree in structure and stature is pretty much a peach tree. Uh, in fact, an almond and a peach are kind of the same thing with different breeding. So almonds would be a nut that you could grow and keep relatively small. And I don't see why you couldn't do a dwarf almond, or at least a semi-dwarf almond. In fact, I can tell you that there are almonds on semi-dwarf rootstock, because you can grow them on the exact same rootstock as you could a peach, So you could make your own truly dwarf almond by taking dwarfing peach uh, rootstock and grafting something like Hall's Hardy Almond onto it. So that would be uh, a possibility. But I think you're looking at, you know, filberts, almonds, um, and chingapins as being your real options for a small nut-producing tree that actually produces something. Uh, when you look at things like walnuts and pecans, Uh, and butternuts and heart nuts, these are just big trees. They just don't, they don't, they're not designed to be small trees. It, it's just part of why, it, you know, they're, they take a lot longer to start producing because they need the size to be able to do the production. It's a, it's a different, uh, process biologically to make something like a nut, uh, than it is to make something, uh, like a fruit. Here's a question I've kind of answered, but I'm going to do it one more time. Um, how do you choose your species? Okay, look, th this is the question that everybody tries to make hard, and it's not hard. Okay, Get a plant catalog uh, and start looking at what zones all the stuff in it grows. Ch b bushes, vines, shrubs, trees that grow edibles, and find all the stuff that grows in your zone and start with that. 
Uh, watch my Food Forest presentation. It's free. It's over an hour long. It's on YouTube in total HD. Um, watch that. I go through what I selected and how I selected it. Don't make this hard. It's not hard. People have different zones and different climates and different rainfalls, and I don't care. Grow what grows where you live. That's it. This is the one that's just, it's, it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. Because what happens is that people just don't seem to get it at all. And what I mean by that is they'll, they'll look at a video of something going on in Florida, and the guy's got all this stuff growing there, and they'll go, well, I, what do I, I kind of grow in, you know, in Maryland? And, like, the guy's growing, like, apples and pears, southern varieties, that he had to really work hard to find so he could... And you can grow all the apples and pears you want in Maryland. Right? The way you select your species is by growing what grows where you live. And, and I, I, I don't know how many times I have to say this. And if you're looking for a shopping list for your environment... Just start looking at everything you eat already that's a fruit or a nut or a berry and, and find out if that grows where you live and start there. Support species, I've given them. I've given them, I've given them, I've given them, I've given them, and I've given them. If it fixes nitrogen and grows where you live, great. And on support species, understand this. The better your existing soils, the more northern your climate, and the more reasonably soaking rain you get, the less support species you need, including to the point of where you almost don't need them at all. If you're sitting in Michigan with a beautiful field of deep soil and good rainfall and a climate that's pretty predictable to, to the four seasonal change and you don't have the loss of soils and it, I mean, don't make what's, don't always try to do what somebody else does. If it works, just run with it. Right? Um, but the way you select your species is you pick what you want to grow and you grow what you want to grow that grows where you live. And, and there's nothing more than that. Um, pers this person also asked about choosing cover crop mixes and said people like Jeff Lawton keep their, their cover crop mixes a secret. Um, I don't know where you get that from. Sepp Holzer does. And he makes a big deal about it. And there's like four million wildflowers and all. And all Sepp Holzer has is he's been growing his shit up on the side of the mountains for a long time, and everything that, that produces lots of seed and looks good and does well, he just keeps saving seed from it and redoing it. And he's been doing it so many years, he has this big mix of seeds. You can do that too if that's what you want to do. Right? This is food forestry, not pasture management, though. All right? Um, but Jeff Lawton's super secret mix is in the summer, he does mostly cow pea, and in the winter, he does mostly winter pea. Um, for food forest establishment. That's it. He does lupin. Um, you know, I, I know Jeff likes buckwheat as a biomass thing, but I have a cover crop thing coming out on all of this stuff that we, we did at the workshop, but um, it, the video was corrupted, so I have to redo it. So um, I, uh, I, I, I just think that that's one of those things that I, I think people also think too much about. I mean, with cover cropping, what are you trying to do? With with food forestry, generally what we're doing with a cover crop is we're doing, we're, we're covering the soil, we're preventing erosion, and we're fixing nitrogen. So whatever legume will grow at the time of the year you're planting is what, what you're doing. When we're talking about cover cropping for food forestry, we're not really talking about building that inner soil pasture. Though we can do that, that's not really where we're going with that. But 
the truth is what grows in your area that fixes nitrogen at the time of the year you're putting it down uh, that's affordable is a great thing to put on a swell berm to cover it up and fix nitrogen while your other stuff establishes because you don't keep doing that. Right? It's not like you're going in there and putting that cover crop down every year on this because it's going to be shaded and covered with all these bushes and shrubs and trees and vines and some perennial ground covers will come in there and things like that. And you, that's a temporary thing. That, those, those species generally live for six months to less than a year before they die. And they all die. And their purpose is to die. They are to provide biomass, erosion prevention, dynamic accumulation, um, and, and fixed nitrogen. So, um, when you, when you're choosing a cover crop, it really involves asking yourself, what do I want it to do? Do I want it to be there long term? And how am I going to maintain it? And if you answer those questions, the, all the stuff just works itself out. Well, I want to grow, you know, clover in the desert. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Not unless you're going to irrigate it. So now you're stuck with irrigation. So that's not your cover crop there, right? Um, it can't handle the heat. So don't do that there. You know, my soil is alkaline. Well, grow, grow alfalfa. If, if alfalfa works in your climate, grow alfalfa in alkaline soil. It does fine, right? I mean, but do you want to invest in high-dollar alfalfa seed in a swale berm that you know is going to be forested in in, in a couple of years? And, and probably not, but it might make sense in your inner swale. So that's how you have to think about that. But again, I don't know where this person got that Lawton keeps his cover crop mixes a secret. It's right in his videos. He shows exactly what he's putting down, and it's not that much. It was like when he was doing the food forest video, he put down um, red cowpea, winter pea, and lupin. That was the whole mix. They were all legumes. And the reason he did cowpea and winter pea is because it was still warm enough for the cowpea, but soon going into winter time where the winter pea would take over. So as winter came, the red cowpea would winter kill and the winter, winter pea and lupin would take over. That was it. That was the whole thing. So there was no hiding or secrets or anything like that. Um, next, when you clear forest, like young scrub forest or whatever, you want to open up the canopy and plant, uh, so do you cut the, how do you cut the existing trees? Do you cut them to the ground? Do you grind out the stumps? I would say it depends, because <laughs> it always depends. But I would basically cut them to the ground, maybe. Or I might cut them to low stumps, maybe. And here's the couple things I would think about. If I'm doing this where I'm going to plant kind of an open space and I'm going to be going in there and mowing, um, I do not want them to the ground unless I can get them dead, flat, smooth to the ground, or you're going to be driving around in your mower, and you're going to hear, boom, and you're going to blow up your blade. So unless you can get them dead flat to the ground, I'd rather leave them a couple feet high so you can see them. Now, if I had some hardwoods in there, and I might cut them at about four feet, and if they start to coppice a little bit, kill them and kill them and kill them, because then I'm going to drill holes in them, and I'm going to stick mushroom spawn in there, and I'm going to have gourmet decomposers. You know, I'm going to have mushrooms. So I might want to use the stumps for mushroom cultivation. They're into the ground. They're going to wick up moisture, and the mushrooms will help decompose the, the log to the soil, and I get mushrooms. So I might do that. But I'm not going to almost never am I going to try to get the stumps out of the ground. With the only exception being is I'm putting a swale in, 
And my swill needs to go through this place for whatever reason, probably because it's going over there to pick up some surface runoff. So that contour line comes to here, and there's a stump there. I might dig out that stump, if possible, with an excavator. But I would only remove the stumps that are in my way. All the rest of it, we plant the support species, by and large, to fix nitrogen, but also to put a lot of biomass under the surface. You've already got that. So when you cut those trees and kill them, and their roots begin to rot, and your new trees are going in there, that's called a fast carbon pathway. So I would never try, I would never try to get something out unless I had to because of something I'm trying to plant and I can't get it in there. And I would do everything I could to just plant it a little bit to the left or right before I'd make the decision to go in and dig that thing out. Um, cause it's so much effort for so little return. Uh, or again, if I'm putting in a swale and a stump's in the way and that swale needs to be there, um, I would do it with some exceptions. Let, I, see, I would never cut down like a monarch of the forest, right? You know, you're talking about massive oak, hundreds of feet tall, gorgeous, big around. But if it's already been cut and that stump's there, and that stump just seems like too much effort, I might take my swale around it and mechanically create contour around there. So I'm going a little bit upgrade, but I'm going a little bit deeper. So I would take my level, and I would go around that bend in the swale and level the bottom of the swale, and it'll still function just fine. And the reason I would do that is because it will take less effort and less time and less money to go around that stump than to remove it if it's some massive thing like that. So that's that's the exception, I guess, there. Um To prune or not to prune? And is that even the question? I think the question is more, um, when do you prune? And where do you prune? And why do you prune? So the question was basically, do you advocate pruning trees or not pruning trees? And the answer is, dun, dun, dun. It depends. Um, and it depends a lot on where. So, and when I say where, I mean what zone. So if we're in a zone one, zone two urban setting and we're going to be keeping our trees small, well, of course we're going to prune. Otherwise, they would get big. And the only way to keep them manageable was to prune them to keep them down and manageable. When you get into a zone four, some people, or even you know, kind of the edge of zone two, bigger trees and things like that, some people say prune, some people say not to prune. I think you do what you want, and maybe you do both and see what works better for you. And then there is, well, do you prune often or do you prune maybe once to form the shape of the tree? My belief is that you almost have to prune in many instances when you buy trees. Because they'll come to you with kind of funky weird growth because the people that sell trees know that people like to see lots of stuff on them when they show up. So unless you're buying for a nursery and you're buying like bare roots where they'll say, well, we'll have it pre-pruned for you. Some will do that too. You say, I just want it, I want it ready to go. And they'll do it. And that's great. Added service, right? But in most of this, you got this kind of weird stuff and you got to prune it because it's got branches crossing and things that'll cause problems. So you prune it that once. But to me, when it's in a big system, I should only prune if I see a reason to. I shouldn't prune just to prune. Um, if I want to maintain that tree at a certain height, Even in a bigger system, I might say, I just don't want that tree that high. I want to be able to reach it, so I might prune it. 
Um, or I might say that tree, because of the solar aspect, is kind of extending further to one side than I want. It's encroaching on its neighbor, so I'll prune a couple limbs off of it so that that other tree can have that space in the canopy. But otherwise, I'm not touching it. I'm not pruning those big systems. I don't think it makes sense. Other than, again, there's a branch in my face. I don't like it this low. That limb's coming off, right? This thing, if I come through this, this access path I have on my tractor, this limb's going to whack me in the face, knock me off my tractor, bloody my nose, and make me sad. So that limb comes off. Um, this tree is encroaching on this buddy. That limb comes off. I'm getting a little too much shade here, and I want to open this up a bit. That limb comes off. That's, that's pruning out there. Zone 2 systems, I'm looking at the architecture of the tree. I might be doing an espalier where I'm trying to put a tree flat against a wall. All those things I have to prune to get it done. So that's my take on pruning. The person that asks us says, Sepp Holzer advises never pruning. Sepp Holzer is also growing most of his trees from seed. I think it's a very good reason to grow from seed. And if you grow a tree from seed, I think inherently it will have less need of pruning than a grafted tree. Because a grafted tree, we're taking a piece of a, a, a tree and sticking it on the root of another tree, and it's not going to grow into a form that's natural unless we encourage it to do so. But if we take a, a, an apple seed, which you can grow apple seeds into good apple trees. No, they will not look just like the apple you ate, but no, they won't be terrible crab apples either. That is a myth. It is not true. That's Bill Mollison. And I grow that tree from an apple, and it's never had its roots you know, in a pot. And it's never had to deal with the graft, and it's never had that shock, and it just drives that taproot down and shoots out those side roots and starts shooting its top up. That tree knows how to grow. It doesn't need me to prune it. The apple trees got along just fine in their native forest in Kazakhstan before we came along and started grafting and pruning them. So that tree doesn't need me. Um, last one. Do you worry about mosquitoes in your swales? This is the last question, and this is the last time that I will ever answer a question about mosquitoes and ponds or swales ever again, ever, 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 ever. If I had one wish for humanity as it was related to how to think about permaculture, it would be that they everybody takes their mosquito freakout hat off and burns it and quits. Stop, 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 stop worrying about mosquitoes. First of all, a mosquito would rather breed in a tire or a cow hoof print in a hot, steamy, stinky place or the little plastic cellophane that comes off of a cigarette packet than it would in your swell. Number one. Number two. Your swale will not hold water for long periods of time, especially at the times that there's lots of mosquitoes, unless you live in a place with, like, permafrost, where the swale's holding water from the melt and the permafrost underneath is keeping the water from soaking in. In which case, you have mosquitoes everywhere anyway in those environments. It's tundra. Okay, so a swale is going to maybe hold water at most in mosquito season on a good day for a week. And by the time the mosquitoes find it, land in it, lay their little mosquito larvas, and the little mosquito larvas are flipping around in there, and they're getting ready to come out, and it dries up, and then they die. And they've wasted their reproductive energy, so you don't worry about it. If you have a body of water, a pond, a anything that you're worried about a mosquito in, it's called a fish. If you have fish in a pond or a, a lake or a stock tank or whatever, 
you are not going to have mosquito problems from there. Because if you think about a mosquito wiggler, it wiggles and wiggles and wiggles and wiggles and it sticks its little straw up and it sits there sucking air and breathing and it's like a freaking target. You know, it's it's like the crosshairs of every fish in that body of water, like, hmm, snap. So you will not have mosquito problems in a body of water with small fish. You can't do it. It won't happen. Mosquitoes don't like to breed there. Swales are not mosquito breeding grounds. Swales are not mosquito breeding grounds. Swales are not mosquito breeding grounds. I know some of you are like, damn, I hope he doesn't say it again. But I'm going to say, because this is the last time I will address this question, and I will tell anybody with this question to go listen to the end of episode 1270, swales are not mosquito breeding grounds. They're fresh water that charges and discharges into the landscape. Can a swale in a mature system, especially a lower swale, end up becoming like a canal that stays full of water? Yes. Could mosquitoes breed in there? Yes. What is the solution? A fish. Goldfish, mosquito fish, minnows, what have you. If it's inhabited with fish, you are not going to have a mosquito problem. Swales are not mosquito breeding grounds. Seriously. I have to tell you that I have heard this concern so many times. It makes me want to get up, go outside to the brick-facing side of my home, run as fast as I can and smash my face into the wall every time I hear it because it's such a meaningless thing. There are so many places, wherever you live, that are so much more preferred mosquito breeding areas than a swale that it is absolutely meaningless to the totality of population of mosquitoes in your area. Mosquitoes like stagnant, standing, stinky water. If you leave a bucket fill up with water on the back of your property, it will likely breed more mosquitoes per year than a swell that's a thousand feet long ever could hope to. That one bucket will. And as long as that bucket is shaded and if, if something can survive in there, If you put a goldfish in there, it will probably breed almost none. So there you go on mosquitoes. Final word. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. If I seem like I got a little frustrated with the mosquito thing, it's just like since I've said it and I've said it and I've said it, maybe if I say it that way, maybe the final people fighting it, just going, it has to be a problem. They've told me if the water's there. A tire, a bucket, cellophane wrapper from a freaking pack of cigarettes, all are more likely to increase the mosquito population on your property than a swale. And if it's a pond that holds water, put fish in it. That is the entirety. Now, let's say, just before I finish this up, let's say you get this one amazing event, this one time where um, you get this seminal moment and you get just this huge rain event and your swales are really holding water for a long time in a summer and it's unusual but they're there and it's going to be holding more than a week there's a thing called a BT dunk it's natural it's organic, it's a bacterium it destroys mosquitoes go buy some of them, they're cheap 
chunk a couple of them in the areas of standing water, and you won't have a problem. Anyway, with that, Matt, I hope uh, we've answered everybody's questions on food forestry. And uh, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.